welcome to Podcast 34 here on The Voice of the Arts with your host, yours truly, Joe Weber. Today's show is going to focus on an interview I did back in November of 2009 with Jim Dunham, who had been a regular contributor to my former radio station in Atlanta, WMLB 1690 AM. Jim has a vast knowledge of the American West during the period of population expansion of the 19th century. This particular interview focuses on two of the most illustrious leaders of Native American tribes, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull. Jim, good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing good, Joe. How about yourself? Doing good. Doing good. Uh, you promised you'd uh, be ready to talk about uh, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull. So I'm yeah, gonna... I think those would be a couple of good. We, we really haven't done any uh, Native American uh, personalities since we started doing this kind of stuff. So I think we're, we're kind of do them. And we had kind of talked about Custer and, and how he uh, sort of a... A uh, controversial guy, but uh, is, is a very interesting guy to study. And one of the reasons he's so interesting is because his uh, uh, the men who fought him in battle were so interesting, and Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse are those guys. So, yeah, they're very interesting people. Um, let's start with Crazy Horse. He was the one who was considered the uh, the military uh, tactician. There's no question. Uh, Sitting Bull was a, was a religious leader and a, and a, a strong political uh, personality. Uh, Crazy Horse was was the military leader. First of all, the the you know Indian people uh, divide them. We divide them up. Anthropologists divide them up by kind of where they live and how they live and. And the ones that we most associate with the West are the nomadic Plains Indians that follow the buffalo herds. And of that group, uh, probably the most colorful ones and perhaps the, the ones that are most people are most familiar with are what we call the Sioux Indians or, or the Dakota Lakota Indians. Uh, the word Sioux, you know, we, we see it spelled S-I-O-U-X. And it's and it's one of those things like how in the world you come up with that spelling and it the word actually is is a, an abbreviation of a French word. Uh, if the French made friends with the Ojibwe Chippewa Indians that lived in the Great Lakes and and they were spending time with them, the French trappers in the in the early 1800s. And they met a new group of Indians. They asked the, their friends, the Ojibwe's, who are those guys? And the Ojibwe said, those are the Nadawisu, which literally in their uh, language meant the lesser enemies. It really means the lesser adders, the lesser snakes. And that's because they had more trouble from the Iroquois and less from these other guys. And so the French wrote back home and they said, we're spending time with our new friends, the Naduisu. And I called, they, they spelled it N-A-N-A-D-U-D-U-W-E-Q-U-I-S-I-O-U-X. Only a French guy would spell it. sounds Sioux, S-I-O-U-X. And they began to abbreviate it and say, you know, the Sioux Indians are doing the Sioux Indians. They themselves called themselves Lakota, Nakota, and Dakota, depending upon the dialect that they uh, used. And that's, of course, where we get North and South Dakota from. And the Lakota were the ones in, in, the, in the Western Plains part in Montana and in Wyoming and, and down into Colorado following the buffalo herds. Of the Lakota, the, the Teton Sioux, the Teton Lakota, had seven subdivisions. And two of the subdivisions uh, of the of the what we call council fires were the Ogallalas and the Hunkpapas, and and these were 
uh, two of the largest groups of Plains Indians in the, in the West. They divided into these smaller groups for obvious reasons, one of which is that if your camp is too big, you scare off the game. You can't follow the, the animals without frightening them away. Your enemies can see your campfires. Your, your cooking fires create so much smoke that they can see you for miles. and You, you, you lose mobility, and you're, a, you're a basically a, a cavalry. You're a light cavalry that moves on, the, on horseback. And Just imagine one of the reasons why Custer didn't believe that the camp was that big is because the camp the size that, that the scouts were telling him would have had 10,000 horses. You know, uh, a camp of 1,000 teepees, you're going to have, you know, 8 to 10 horses per family. And, and that means that you got 10,000 horses. Well, where in the world do 10,000 horses eat grass and, and get fresh water? It just isn't, it, logistically, it doesn't make sense. So they form into smaller groups. If I, may, if I might stop you for one moment, yeah. it would be the equivalent of a horse Woodstock. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It would be. You that. need a lot of porta potties. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay. So, so the so the two most powerful of these groups were the Ogallalas and the Hunkpapas. There was also the Minicazes and the Sanzarks and the Brulees. But the leader of the Ogallalas became Crazy Horse, and Crazy Horse. Had, was probably born around 1840, and uh, and he he rose to acclaim, and he was mainly a military man, head of a military uh, society, but the Indian people elect military men to political leadership. Now we've done it too. Of course, we we gave Eisenhower the job of president, and Grant the job of president, and and uh, Teddy Roosevelt the job of president. So we've done it in our culture too, but they really do it in their culture because they're so in tune with with the leadership in in military things are so important that it's a natural progression. So Crazy Horse moved into leadership of that particular division, the Oglala Sioux Indians. And he did that through a number of great military battles. The the first one uh was probably when he was a, a boy and and he had a uh a leadership role uh, in decoying uh, Captain William Fetterman, who at Fort Phil Kearney uh, during the during the time that the uh, Bozeman Trail was being built, the uh, Red Cloud War was going on, and Fetterman had bragged that with 80 men he could ride right through the Sioux Nation and, and nobody could stop him. And and Crazy Horse came up with the idea of setting up a a uh, decoy and then riding the decoy into an ambush. Now, for you and I, that doesn't sound like too hard to do, but this is an entire change in the way these people fought. These people, the highest award you could get was be the first to strike in battle, and you could never set up an efficient ambush because the guy who was the first guy to see anybody and have a chance would open fire, and they would give him the highest prize, and nobody ever said, wait, if you had just waited, right. if yeah. you had just waited a few minutes, let him all right in the yeah. middle, you'd kill them all. And, and, but, but the idea of personal combat, personal valor, personal uh, acclaim was so established back in the, in the days of the Indian War, or the Indian fighting techniques, partly because when Indians fought each other, they all fought with the same rules, and honor was important, and it really wasn't about taking the other man's land away from him. They didn't mm-hmm. fight each other for for possessing the other man or turning him into a slave or, or conquering him or taking everything he owns. It was, was it, hit and run. Wasn't one of the, the greatest honors was to 
in combat to touch the leader of the of an opposing tribe, not to yeah, kill them. Exactly. To, yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, the highest honor of all was to ride up with a stick, not your not your axe or your tomahawk, but ride up with a stick, smack him with a stick, and ride away and not get killed yourself. And that was the bravest thing you could do. And and you got you got a higher honor than anybody else. And then then to ride up and touch a dead man. That was like the next highest honor. You say, well, why would you not go kill the enemy rather than touch a dead man? And that's because the, the, the getting your dead comrades off the field of battle was so important that it was extremely dangerous to ride up to a dead man, one of the dead enemies. Anyway, this is just so this is so foreign to Americans and so foreign to white man structure that that it's just hard for us to realize what an effort it was for Crazy Horse to to convince them to set up an effective ambush, which he did. And the he result had to was to go that, against thousands of years, yeah, know, tens thousands of thousands of years, years of, it, of culture. Exactly, to, uh, just was incredible what he did. Yeah. And and uh, and so so Fetterman with his eighty men rides into combat and and gets totally destroyed by an ambush. And really, it was almost a it was almost a mirror image of the Custer fight that would be, you know, years later, because uh, this was December twenty one, eighteen sixty six, uh, near Fort Phil Kearney. And and uh, and this was this was the beginning of of Crazy Horse's rise to popularity and rise to acclaim, and then basically he was involved in a number of fights, the famous wagon box fight with the with the Long Knives, and on June seventeenth, eighteen seventy six, shortly before the Battle of the Little Bighorn, he led a group of people against George Crook. And this was the Battle of the Rosebud, and this was the another Rosebud one. was a river, right? It you was know, one of the river, river. That, flew, that flowed into the Little Bighorn? Exactly. And this was another one of those very few times that the Indians behaved in a military manner and, and behaved in a manner where you had leadership who said, follow me, and they did flanking movements and stuff. And they basically fought... Uh, George Crook to a standstill, and although a lot of people didn't die, he he retreated and, and basically lost the fight, which gave the Indians tremendous encouragement, and it really it did more to make them think they could win, and it changed their mindset. They they went from a mindset of we have to run away every time the soldiers show up, to the idea that we can we can fight these soldiers and win, right. and and that was these the guys, mentality. These guys aren't as tough as we thought. Originally. Exactly, exactly. Right. And we can fight them in their own style. And Crazy Horse had meetings with Gall and Two Moons and Hump and all the other chiefs and leaders. And he explained his ideas. And he said, you know, next time we fight these guys, you take a group of men, you come around the side and you flank them. You come around from the back and catch them from the back. You cut them off from their horses and their supplies. And they literally did what, what American soldiers had done uh in the last, you know, 100 years of trying to learn Napoleonic warfare, they had they basically learned uh, military tactics of the type that uh, the white people were fighting with. And so, so they used their own skill sets against them. And it was with that mentality that when Custer attacked uh, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on, on June 25, 1876, he was facing the largest encampment that had ever been put together of, of Plains Indians, and he was attacking people who were basically changing their entire warfare style and letting Crazy Horse uh, be a leader. And he was like the general. He was like the Eisenhower of, of uh, the Indians, where he basically said, follow me and do this, and they all did it. And it was just incredible. One of the reasons why the Custer battle was so 
uh, effective and why the defeat was so enormous. And such such a surprise to uh, yeah. Um, the uh, it reminds me a little of the story of Moses sending the scouts into into uh, Canaan. Yeah, Caleb, Caleb. Caleb was the only one who came back and said, "We could beat these guys." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Caleb, know? Caleb was definitely one of the few guys that that felt that way, and and uh, everybody else was was saying they're big and they're giants and they're dangerous, and we don't have a chance. Yeah, they're, exactly. They're giants, and we thought of ourselves. We we saw ourselves as grasshoppers in our own eyes. I know. I know. They were, they were full of fear. Yeah, Caleb was a, was the same kind of guy. Right. right. And 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 Sitting Bull was was sort of his partner in this, except that Sitting Bull was a religious leader, and and uh, and uh, he was a healer, and he was a, a medicine man. He was a Wichasawakan, which means that he was a holy man, and he was of the Hunkpapa division. So they he didn't like live in the same camp that Crazy Horse did. And How do you spell that? Hunk Papa? Yeah. H-U-N-K-A-P-A. Hunk Papa. P-A-P-A. H-U-N-K. Hunk P-A-P-A. Hunk Papa. Hunk Papa. And the Hunk Papa is probably the same size or about almost the same size as the Ogallalas. They were the two of the largest Sioux camps and several thousand of them. And Sitting Bull had had visions and he had had dreams and and one of the visions that he had had uh, before the battle took place with Custer is he had had a vision of of the Long Knives, the soldiers falling into camp and dying, and he had been sharing that vision with other people, and as a result, uh, uh, that did another thing about stirring everybody up, thinking that they could win. He he was very active in the in the fight against the. Uh, uh, soldiers at the, around the time that the gold was discovered in the Black Hills, because that's what led to this thing. And mm-hmm. you know, the, the 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 Indians, the Indians were were kind of like gnats or or troublesome during the time they were building the Bozeman Trail, and they were they were trying to push the the Oregon and the California trails to you know keep it open. The Bozeman the, Trail was the one that led to the gold mines. Yeah, the Bozeman Trail led to the gold mines in Montana, and and they 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 built a few forts along it, and and you know the military basically was small and few and far between, and you know they had they had really cut back financially after the Civil War was over. I mean they spent so much money, and so they really didn't bother the Indians very much. And then the Jenny expedition discovers gold in the Black Hills, mm-hmm. and when they discover gold in the Black Hills, they basically tell the Sioux that they can't have freedom, they have to go live on reservations because they're going to come in there and mine for gold. And the Indians then basically say, no, the Black Hills are sacred, we're not giving them up. And that was what really led to the trail down this thing. And they had been given in the winter of um, of uh, 1875, they had been given an ultimatum that they had to be on reservations by January of 76. And after January came and went, and nobody moved in off the reservations, everybody who was out chasing buffalo were considered hostiles. And that meant Sitting Bulls, Hunk Papa, and Crazy Horses, Ogallalas were part of the hostiles. And that's when this campaign, this summer campaign, was put together uh, with Terry and and Gibbon and Custer and Crook and all those guys. They basically were going to bring these guys in, put them on reservations so that they could go 
mm-hmm. get the gold. That was the whole. Mm-hmm. That was the whole thing about motivating it. Yeah. force. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wonder what Crazy Horse would think now if he could come back and see um, all of these casinos. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he probably said, "Well, we won after all." <laughs> yeah, both of these men are killed. It's real sad. Um, Crazy Horse was killed first. Uh, he basically surrendered um, in in May of of uh, uh, or let's see, let's see was, I think it was seventy seven. He surrenders in Nebraska uh, to the military, and uh, and then on September five, eighteen seventy seven, uh, Crazy Horse is uh, trying to take care of his sick wife. He has a sick wife, and he's been told that he can't leave the reservation. He wants to go see a doctor on a different locale or a different reservation, and he puts up a resistance in a fight, and he gets into a fight with soldiers, and one of them with a bayonet stabs him with a bayonet, and he he dies. So he lived from 1840 to 1877. Sitting Bull, as soon as 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 the Custer battle is over, Sitting Bull took his uh, people into Canada, and uh, and he took his his people into Canada uh, and stayed there until 1881. Uh, so Canada basically gave him, you know, free reign to have a reserve or to, to live in Canada, and it was big enough he didn't bother anybody. He came back and surrendered uh, in, in 1881, and then he joined Buffalo Bill's Wild West. <laughs> and so he travels with Buffalo Bill, and they go on the road, and he gets to play himself, which is real interesting. He gets to play himself in the theater. He uh, was very impressed with Annie Oakley. He called her Little Miss Surefire, Sure Shot, Middle Miss Sure Shot. And and then he goes back after he leaves the Buffalo Bill show, and in 1890 he's living on the reservations in the Standing Rock Reservation, and, uh, and the ghost dance movement spreads. And this was an interesting thing that Wavoka, who was a medicine man among the Paiutes, had said that uh, the Messiah was going to come and, and rescue and save the Indian people from the from the oppression of the white man, and that they should get ready for this uh, arrival of this Indian Messiah by doing uh, uh, dances, and they should wear these special shirts with painted symbols on them, and and basically it was like a round dance, but they would dance and chant and dance and sing until they would fall in exhaustion. And then when they would wake up, they would say, "Well, I, I had dreams of the of the Messiah coming, and that the and that this is all reality, and it's going to be good." And, and the, all of the people who were in charge of the reservations, especially James McLaughlin, uh, who was who was head of the reservation there in, in South Dakota, they they basically panicked and they called the military and you know sent telegrams and stuff and said the Indians are dancing and that means they're, that means they're war dancing means they're getting ready for war. And and uh, we we have to stop them from from gathering together and and they talked to uh, or, or they they were going to bring in the military to arrest Sitting Bull because they were afraid he would as a leader he would put together a, a military combat team and uh, Buffalo Bill said uh, this is silly don't uh, you know this is a religious movement and if you just leave them alone they'll just dance until uh, till they're done you know one thing about religious movements either works or it doesn't work and if it works there's nothing you can do about it anyway right. and if it and if it doesn't work if it doesn't work it'll just die out on its own you know right. just leave it alone don't you know back away and leave it alone but they couldn't do that so the 7th cavalry comes in and surrounds uh, uh the reservation with gatling guns and and with uh, Hotchkiss guns and with 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 automatic you know weapons and stuff, 
and they basically say cease dancing, and the Indians don't dance, don't stop. And uh, and the result was, of course, the Wounded Knee Massacre, which was was a horrible time in in America's history. They, they killed hundreds of of innocent Indians that should never have been shot down. But prior to the Wounded Knee, which was which was the last day of of December, December 29. Actually, not last day, but December 29, 1890. On December the 15th. Uh, McLaughlin had asked the military to arrest Sitting Bull uh, so that he wouldn't be a leader in this, this, what they thought was going to be a revolt. And Sitting Bull gets into an argument and fights with the Indian police trying to arrest him, and they shoot him. And so, unfortunately, both Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull were, were killed in, in, in struggles with, uh, with the military and with their own people. And so... Uh, uh, we're uh, we're running out of time here, and I've got to squeeze some a couple of uh, commercials in before the news comes up. I, I want to thank you so much for sharing this information with well, us. Well, it's a pleasure, and there's some real good books out there. Uh, Stanley Vestal wrote uh, a book on Sitting Bull. Dee Brown did Bury My Heart of Wounded Knee. Maria Sandoz uh, did a nice book on Crazy Horse called Strange Man of the Ogallalas. And there's a brand new one that I haven't read yet by a fellow named Ken, Kinsley Bray called Crazy Horse of Lakota Life. But I bought the right. book, and I'm looking forward to reading it.
rode a line on the open range when cow punching wasn't slow. I've turned the longhorn steer one way, the other the buffalo. I went up the trail in the 80s, oh, the hardships I have stood. I drank the water from cow tracks, boys, when you bet it tasted good. I've rode night guard many a night in the face of a driving storm and sang to them steers a doleful song as they rattled their hawks and horns. I've been in many a stampede too, I've heard the rumbling noise, and the light we had to turn them by was the lightning on their horns. But many a cowboy I rode within is sleeping on old Boot Hill. And the last cow drive was made to dodge on the Jones and Plummer Trail. They're building towns and railroads now where we used to bed our cows. And the man with a mule, the plow and hoe, is digging up our old bed grounds. The old cowboy has watched the change, seen the good times come and go. But the old cowboy will soon be gone, just like the buffalo. Don Edwards and the Old Cowboy closing out the show here on The Voice of the Arts. This is Joe Weber saying so long and thanks for listening. <laughs>